Hello, welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Susan Pendergrass, the Director of Research at the Show Me Institute. And today we're going to talk to Emily Staley, an analyst at the Show Me Institute, about her year-long work on poverty in Missouri and why it's so important. Emily Staley from our policy team, you have been spending a lot of time really digging in on poverty in Missouri. You know, it may feel like um, the economy is doing pretty well, unemployment's low, and poverty isn't something we need to worry about. Right. I think there is a misconception because the state as a whole is trending in the correct direction that the entire state is doing well, when that's not true. There's pockets of deep cyclical poverty in the state, and that has major implications for these people's lives, but also for the rest of the state, especially when it comes to the economy. So where are those pockets? So we have St. Louis, Kansas City, parts of Kansas City in particular, and then the Boot Heel region, which is in the southeastern corner. looks kind of like a Boot Heel, they say. Um, There's about five or six counties down there that just have like really deep poverty and really distressed economies that because they're not a large portion of the state, they kind of get swept under the rug when we have really low unemployment numbers, like 3.1 percent, which is like the lowest it's been since uh, the like the 20th century. Right. So uh, so I, I think most people who live in this, I guess, who live in the state, they know that St. Louis has got big problems, right? Right. Or People living in St. Louis, lots of them are are struggling. And you know that about Kansas City to a certain extent. But maybe you know about the, the boot heel. Before I moved to Missouri, I'd never heard of the boot heel, so maybe not. But it also is true, am I right, that like in the middle of the state, we've got like rural, poor areas right. where people are seriously struggling and like the whole community is being affected by um, the fact that people are not getting out of poverty. Exactly. And even not so rural areas like Springfield. Like oh. Springfield has a higher child poverty rate than the rest of that kind of area. Greene County, their poverty rate is in the low 20. Their child poverty rate is in the low 20s, whereas Springfield is over 30 percent. Really? And so there's kind of poverty that's concentrated in Springfield, but then also other smaller towns. Like there's one town, Eldon, which has a child poverty rate of 75 percent. No way. And it's a small town. I think it's only like a few thousand yeah. people. It's not huge. But you're talking about like deep rooted poverty in those right. areas. And we can't ignore them just because the rest of the state seems to be doing OK. Sure. And so like, I mean, I'm not blaming anyone for living in poverty. Right. But people have choices that they make. And as adults, I guess that you could make different sets of choices, let's say. But if you're a kid, right, right, and you're born into a household that is already below the federal poverty level, mm-hmm. and they're probably already getting entitlements, good chance that you're not in a good neighborhood, good chance you don't have a good school in your neighborhood, right? So these kids are just like, from the word go, their life chances are uh, n- not good. Right. And we know this now with the work that economists and social scientists have done on what they call economic or social mobility. And these essays that I've written this past year, which you can find at showmeinstitute.org if you're interested, (laughs) um, they look at this mobility and how likely it is for these children at the bottom of, that are born to low-income families, how likely it is that they'll move up. And unfortunately, we can predict that in certain areas in Missouri, so we're talking St. Louis, 
Cape Girardeau, which is in the southeastern corner, mm-hmm. Springfield, Poplar Bluff, which is also by Cape Girardeau, is Kansas City, that about a third of the children born into poverty will stay in poverty their entire lives. We already know this right. before they're even really given a chance. And and because there's just so many different factors that are creating obstacles for them. Right, to get out. So it's not like, just get a job and pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Right? Like, like they are already born into a situation. And what does that look like? What, what are their families probably, they're getting... Food stamps? Yeah, so getting... there's food stamps, there's Medicaid. Medicaid is a big one. Yeah. When it comes to co- when it comes to cost, like that's where a lot of welfare spending is going is okay. to Medicaid. There's temporary assistance for needy families, TANF, mm-hmm. which um is kind of more of geared toward what they call situational poverty. Mm-hmm. In these essays, I delineate between situational poverty and intergenerational poverty, which is what is situational poverty? So that's poverty. like if you lose your job okay. or if your parents divorce and you have to kind of figure out that new yep. economic situation with parents not living together anymore. Whereas intergenerational poverty is the grandparents are poor, the yep. parents are poor, the kids are growing up in poverty and with a lot of factors going on, maybe they don't go to good schools, yeah. maybe they have learning disabilities or all these different things. Mobility, right? They might move right. all the time. Right. They might move. And that's that instability is really hard sure. on kids. Like we we know a lot like how stress affects like kids developmentally. And so it's really setting them up for failure in a lot of ways. But also setting them up to be dependent on the state, cradle to grave. Right. They will so, be dependent on the state for their sources of Income, housing, food, medical care. Right. So this intergenerational poverty is really what states kind of not necessarily need to maybe prioritize because it has implications from one generation to the next. But then it also has really large implications for the state in terms of welfare spending, because when you like provide like unemployment benefits, those people are on it temporarily and then they go back to working, hopefully. Whereas if you have someone who is collecting welfare benefits for pretty much their entire lives. And then they have kids who also do that. Like that adds up quickly. And we're talking in like the billions of dollars for a very small portion of the population. And they're not paying taxes. Right. Right. So I mean, like the ideal would be to, even though a child is born to a low income household, they get the tools they need. They get a good education. They hopefully graduate from college career. I'm sorry, from high school. Right. Career college ready. So they can at least get a decent job and then become income independent and taxpaying citizens rather than being dependent on the state for all of their basic needs. Right. And that's kind of where there's a lot of factors that influence intergenerational poverty. And it's not like we can solve all of them. But education is a really clear path forward of where we can improve in Missouri. Um, Our education system, I think, is uh, mediocre overall, but it really is failing our low-income students. But if we don't do something about it soon, large entitlement spending will crowd out other priorities. It's been growing. A third of our budget is spent just on Medicaid. Just on Medicaid. That's like when you want to complain about the roads, you want to complain about other things. The schools. It's like the schools, for right. sure. Like we are, we are locking, and it goes up every year. It goes up, and it's mandatory spending. It's not like we can't help these people if they qualify for it they get it for sure and so it's not we don't have a lot of flexibility we have to the only way to curb that spending is to get people out of poverty to be self-sufficient so in your paper you talked a little you you write a little bit about what would happen if we just could improve a little bit 
on yeah. that rate of intergenerational mobility. In other words, like what would happen if we could just get a few more kids up enough of the rungs of the income ladder to not be living in poverty when they're adults? And well, t- tell me a little bit about yeah. that. So we kind of did like a, I guess you would call it like a numerical experiment. All right. Um, we took, we looked at the children that were in poverty in 1989. So kids that were under 18 years old. Okay. Why did you use 89? So the mobility data that we used, um, we took from a group of economists that have the Opportunity Atlas Project, and their data is starting in the 80s. So we want to get as close as possible to where they started their project or the data that they are using. Okay. And the guy who's head of that is Raj Chetty. Chetty. Yeah. And he's a a guru. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would highly recommend watching his YouTube lectures. He really breaks this down and makes it understandable, even if you don't have an economics background and really shows why it's so important that for us to improve mobility and make sure that it's more feasible for these low-income children to move up the income ladder. Right. So not to get off track on that, but it is a cool website, right? Right. So you can dig in, you can drill down to like the census track level to look at rates of um, what you what you call intergenerational mobility in the paper, where you can see like what's the likelihood of a child being born in poverty, right. being out of poverty as an adult. And it's like down to neighborhoods. Right. It's really cool. Yeah, they did a fantastic job. So then what we did was we looked at uh, children in poverty um, in 1989, and there were 237 children living in poverty. 237 Thousand? Thousand. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's important well, clarification. Solved problem, problem solved. <laughs> That's important clarification. In Missouri. Right. And yeah. then taking the mobility data and with about a third of children born to poverty staying in poverty, we're looking at almost 78,000 children staying in poverty their entire lives. And For just that one group. Right. That, in 1989. So we're just like cutting out one year's data. Or you can only assume that every other year has similar right. Data. And so right. now those children that were in poverty are now adults. And if we just look from this point on forward, twenty eighteen until yeah. of a, if they have a life expectancy of like seventy, okay, from now until that point, they will collect collect collectively sixteen billion dollars in welfare benefits, and that's a conservative estimate, right. That's incredible. Like sixteen, 16 billion dollars for less than one percent. Like for like one percent of Missouri's population is collecting right. that much money. So then, I mean, that's that should be a wake up call that we have to do something to kind of break those cycles yep. and to help people really have a chance of getting out of poverty. And because it affects every one of us is right. having to pay that sixteen billion dollar bill, right? So no, yeah, those of us exactly are paying right. taxes and working, like that bill doesn't get paid from some money tree in Jefferson City, right? Like we right. are the ones who create the money tree in Jefferson City. So we are paying into that. Right. And so then we asked like, what if we just improved mobility by ten percent, like a small ma- a m- measure, instead of just going down the course we are now, let's say even a one billion dollars, which is a ton of money, <laughs> to improve mobility will save two billion dollars in the long run. And so it's a worth not only is it a worthwhile investment for helping these kids to have a better future, but like that is a real economic advantage for the state. Sure. If we can start breaking those cycles of poverty and then we can start investing in other priorities in the state and not having all of our tax dollars gobbled up by Medicaid. OK, so what are like some concrete things that we could do with that billion dollars? So, education. Right. I think looking at education and how we can improve um, our education system 
is like the most obvious first step, I would say. People talk about workforce development all the time. Right. They talk about the fact that we know we have a skilled labor gap. We know that uh, businesses, when they're surveyed, are unhappy with the quality of our high school graduates. So what right. what did you find in your research that we could specifically, like, what could we do? I want to point out that there is a really big gap between low-income students and other students with their test scores and not test scores or everything, but it shows that like these kids are not being well prepared. And I mean, Missouri students in general aren't being well prepared, I think, (laughs) but like that's especially true for the low income students. And there's gaps with the National Assessment for Education Progress. Mm -hmm. Their scores have 20 point gaps and there's also gaps on the ACT. But on the National Assessment for Education process for eighth graders who were eligible for free and reduced lunches. So that's kind of like the federal benchmark for in poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the federal poverty line, but it's a good approximation. what we use. Yeah. yeah. Just 16 percent of those eighth graders scored proficient in math. And like that's that's startling that these low income students are coming out from eighth grade going into high school Completely unprepared. Probably can't read. Probably can't do math. Can't do math and read at a grade level. And like that is a travesty. You should go to college. Right. (laughs) And we're telling them that we should go to college. And one of the really discouraging things. So when the ACT takes data, they also ask the students like what their plans are. And it's like 70 percent of the people. So 100 percent of Missouri graduates now take the ACT. Okay, And a big majority of them have plans for some kind of education beyond high school a small fraction of them are (laughs) actually prepared and so we're doing them a disservice where it's like you need to go to college you can do every you can do it all when we're not giving them the tools that Uh, they need especially first generation low-income students the idea of going to college can be overwhelming and can be very challenging if no one in your family's gone to college and I think you mentioned a couple of support systems that we could invest in so that maybe we could help those low-income students who do matriculate into post-secondary education, actually finish. Yeah. So I think the plan of attack should include two things, which is better supporting students when they go to college. And then we can talk next later about better career education. But first, talking about supporting low-income students when they go to college, the country and the state spend billions of dollars on scholarships for low-income students mm-hmm. to make sure that, that is, it is more economically accessible. But what we're realizing is that they don't have like the social support side or they don't have someone helping them through the kind of non-financial side of things when you go to college. Because I think I know I I didn't before I started this project. I kind of took for granted like how much knowledge I got from my parents who are both college educated and all my siblings who are college educated and have advanced degrees of how much they kind of helped guide me through mm-hmm. college when I would experience some kind of obstacle. Yeah. And if you're a first generation student, say you're a first generation student, maybe your parents don't even speak English that well. How much support do you have going into college? And there are count or there are advisors and counselors, but most of the time students will tell you that they're not very helpful in actuality or it's really hard to access them. Yeah. So One of the things, uh, Knowledge is Power program, the charter school network that is one of the best in the country. We have them here in Missouri, in St. Louis and in Kansas City. They had this goal of to and through college. Mm -hmm. 
but they saw that it was more difficult to get the kids through college. Uh, they could get them to college sure. because these kids were academically prepared. They were scoring really well, but they were missing that other support. Completion. Yeah, they couldn't complete. And so they have this program that helps make sure that they check all the boxes. So they're they apply for all the financial aid that they can. They can navigate all of the different intricacies of yep. college admissions or what you need before you step on campus. And then they offer mentorships so that students have someone to turn to if they have questions or they're struggling or they need more guidance. And they connect them with other KIPP alumni and do all these sorts of things. And I've heard they even have like um, a place on campus where you can hang out. It's like they have like a, I don't know what it looks like, some sort of student lounge or something where you right. can go and, and meet other Kipsters. And having that community is is so important. Absolutely. To encourage you when you are maybe struggling in a class or you don't really know. You, you feel isolated, right? right? So if you're a low-income first-generation student and you land on a college campus where you've never been before, right. you know, you would feel isolated, I would think. There's a good chance you would. And, and I think creating connections early. And also right. it's possible that your family's like, why are you doing this? You should be earning money. You know what right. I mean? So you sort of need that encouragement. Right. Especially if you're going, like some of these kids are extremely intelligent. It's not a matter of intelligence, sure. but if you take a child that grew up in poverty and throw them into an Ivy league, it's a, sure. it's going to be a, it's going to be a culture shock. And having yeah. that extra support is really important. And so Kip and other charter schools that, time to do similar things, they're graduating, their their students are graduating college at a much higher rate yep. than other low-income like students. Like three to five times. Like three to five times. Yeah. And the 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 um <laughs> it's incredible low-income college completion rate's like 10%. So right. I mean if they're getting them to 30, it's still a big deal, right? Because right. worst case scenario is we encourage low-income students to go to college and they take on debt and then they don't finish and then they are just like that's like the worst scenario. I yeah. think we can and that's happening we a lot. Need to make sure that doesn't happen. Because, yeah, if you don't, so I have student loans, yeah. but I have a degree and I feel confident that I can pay off my job. student loans and I have a job. <laughs> but if you, I, if I had student loans and I had to drop out for some reason, how am I going to pay that back? We know the default rate's really high on those. It's like, yeah. it, so then we all pay for that too. So again, mm-hmm. like we're sort of coming back to like, what can we do with this billion, right? right. We could we could take that billion, a right. portion of it, and try to set up like like really high quality support systems for right. low-income students who do end up enrolling in college and making sure that, you know, even I think KIPP through college is like 2000 per student. But even if you have like a one-on-one thing, like you make sure that you help those students at least through the first or second year, that's a return on our investment. Absolutely. Because and they're going to be earning more. They'll be earning. In fact, yeah, yeah, if they'll be, they'll be earning and they'll be earning more if they actually complete college. And so, Yes, it'll be a cost up front, but like what we talked about earlier with the 16 versus the $13 billion, a smaller investment can make a huge difference in the long run, especially if that breaks the cycle of poverty and then that graduates kids start off on a better, exactly. a better life. Then we've improved mobility. And I say worst case scenario is graduating, uh, leaving college with debt. Worst case scenario is you stay on entitlement programs your whole right. life. Like this is with what we're debt. trying to get at. <laughs> like people who are born into a, a household with all entitlement program support and then people who stay there their whole lives, right? So, yes. So I think, all right, great. What about um, what, what something we know is an issue in Missouri, in so many states, it, so, it sounds like a buzzword these days, but this um, skilled labor 
right. gap? What do we do? Right. So when they say a skilled labor gap, there's mean? there is a difference in the kind of workers that employers are looking for. They want certain skills or a certain education level, and there's not enough workers that meet that criteria right now. And what they've and more specifically, there's a lot of jobs out there that yeah. don't require a four-year degree or a bachelor's degree, but require some kind of training, maybe an associate's degree after high school. So it's like that middle skill where a lot of employers are looking for people to hire. Plus skilled trades. Right. And like, it's in really high demand, really good salaries. For sure. And really good benefits. These are really good careers that Missouri is not preparing its students for. And some other states do a much better job at doing this. Massachusetts is one of them. Yeah, and Florida. Florida. I'm always talking about Florida. <laughs> Florida's doing that too. Right. And Missouri's being left behind. I mean, I'm from Kansas and even like my high school had <laughs> a really great uh, career in technical education, like auto trade. Sure. Welding. I had someone I graduated with who's been a welder since we graduated years ago and he's doing very very well and setting them on the right path so like if college isn't college isn't right for everybody and that's perfectly okay oh for sure and but we have to make sure that those other paths are known to students and are they're actually prepared for them okay so here's what i hear from people oh well we have regional votech schools and you know we have cte programs or career technology cte all across the state, and we have all these kids participating in these CTE programs, but we know that lots of them, lots of those pathways, have um, have a credential they could get that's given not by the school system. Right. It's given by the industry, like a certified nursing assistant. So, yeah, certified nursing assistant, mm-hmm. CNA, right? You could, there's a CNA exam you can take while you're in high school and and I know every day on my commute to work, which is a whole mile, there's these signs in the um, middle of the in the the median, like CNAs wanted nurses come. Like there is such a demand for yes. nurses and CNAs. And we could have students in the CTE programs in high school leave as a CNA and immediately, like you said about your friend who's a welder, they can immediately be going into a job with, you know, $25 an hour, $20, $25 an hour, which is a very well-paying job, especially right at high school. And it's a career. It's not even like a job. It's a career. Right. Automotive uh, service excellence. And with a CNA, then you can work for a time, then get become an RN. For sure. Work for a time. If you want to move on to becoming a nurse practitioner, then you can keep moving up. But giving them that baseline of getting them a jump start on career ready, on career ready or that industry recognized credential IRC or even college credit so they can get their associate's degree even quicker. That is what we need to focus on. And we have we have some regional vocational centers, but like 16 percent of our students actually go to them for at least one class. Uh, I think they still have that stigma that it's kind of for, you know, for the the lower quality students like, oh, I'll just go with shop. Right. And that is so not the case. If right. you've been to one, it's like if you go to a good school, a good CTE program. I mean, there, it's, it's difficult insane. stuff. Yes, it's yeah, absolutely like culinary. There's like kitchens and there's right. like. Um, so I mentioned Massachusetts and they have these regional vocational schools and they're specialized in there's so many different things. It's not just like welding, like your traditional yeah, yeah, trade yeah. skills. Like they have 
all sorts of different things, and especially with kind of technology and programming. Like Adobe certified, HTML certified. Yeah. All of these things we're missing out on because we kind of have this outdated or we're not really trying to innovate and... It honestly looks a lot like my my college my high school experience in the eighties. It looks very similar, <laughs> yeah. and I know from the so you've got these IRCs that students can take in high school, and I know that in twenty seventeen because I found out from Desi uh, for the Masonry IRC exam, and St. Louis was called the Brick City. So the mm-hmm. Masonry exam in the entire state of Missouri, six students yeah took and, and passed. Like- the masonry and we have eight hundred thousand students yeah in the school system yeah six students passing the masonry exam so something is something's off track there Mm -hmm. in that you know kids are in the programs but they're not leaving career ready and i i also think and i don't i I, i'm not sure if you mentioned it in your essays or not but some show me institute talks about is maybe incentivizing these programs so that the teachers who teach them could get I don't know, a little bump in their paycheck, 50 or $100 for every student who actually takes an IRC because then they leave high school as a taxpayer right. at a higher income. Absolutely. Like you get it back immediately. Right. And one of the things I point out of a kind of a maybe not directly copying other states models, but these kind of specialized high schools, what they what needs to happen is that they need to be flexible and be responsive to the needs and interests of students, but also the employers in the area. They need to be autonomous so they can pay the teachers what they need to to attract good instructors and good teachers. Because a lot of them aren't just regular teachers. Like you have your English teachers and your math teachers, but you're going to need like a nurse. Right. And And you have to compete with like those kind of instructors with private sector jobs. Yeah. And so it needs that kind of autonomy and flexibility. And then most of all, these have to be schools of choice and making sure that choice is made clear to low-income students of, if you don't feel like college is right for you, Mm -hmm. we have these other options that could really set you up for a better life and a good career that is in high demand. Like your skills, and I think that's, Something that these students need to hear, like your skills is are needed in Missouri. For sure. And especially at that kind of middle skill level where you don't need a four year degree to be successful. Yeah. And you can leave. Hopefully we have enough programs that you can leave high school with an associates. High schools do that where you can graduate yeah. with your high school diploma and your associates degree. And telling these kids is like we our economy, the rest of the state, we need you. We we want them. So you talk about like the boot heel, Southeast Missouri, where you've got this deep poverty. Imagine a really high quality career technical ed school there right. where students, even though they're born in poverty and maybe their life circumstances are very challenging, but while they're at school, they could become a certified auto mechanic or a CNA or like they could be the first one in their family to actually have a, a good job, right? right? So, and, and, um, that could theoretically then sort of turn around that region if we so, you know, from your essays and from the data from Harvard, like where these pockets are. Right. Right. And we could make better use of that information to say, absolutely, look, we have a really high quality uh, too technical ed schools in the St. Louis County where mm-hmm. they also have good schools, <laughs> you know, yeah. what I mean, and great CTE schools like, yeah, our good CTE schools need to be like lake of the ozarks region they need right. to be in like green county well or in the springfield area they need to be down in southeast missouri in the boot heel like we need to focus and and 
it's we again, I keep coming back to this idea like we are all paying this bill. Right. right. And we could not no, not only not be paying for these people's lives, but they could actually be uh, contributing back to the. Oh, yes. Thank you. Contributing Absolutely. to the economy rather than being like a pull on the economy. Right. So right. it's in our best interest to to not just pretend the problem doesn't exist, right? right? It's it's a problem and it's all of our problem. Right. And it affects all of us. Right. And not just thinking it's a small problem. Yeah. Because even a small percentage, like this like 78,000, like over 1%, like between 1% and 2%, they have such a large cost associated with that lifetime poverty. And so right. even the smaller numbers make a really big difference when we're talking about like the long-term economic impact. And so investing extra upfront in things like a regional, a regional vocational school. So like a good one. Yeah. A good <laughs> regional vocational school. Not just, not just build one because we have those. And outside of the traditional school district model, like For sure. have the four counties share one. I mean, it's not yeah. a huge area or have two counties share because granted vocational schools can be expensive. Like they have a lot yes. of specialized equipment and instructors that are not cheap. But if you pool those resources and kind of break that tra- traditional school district model, then it makes it a lot more feasible. And also it opens it up to like public private partnerships. I think yes. the, some of the CNA programs partner with like Walgreens or, you know, there's you can do or like what you said before. I really like this idea of like um, cu- tailoring it to the community. So if you need to do agribusness or, yes. you know, uh, you could create uh, the school that draws everybody in the region that wants mm-hmm. to study that field, if you're really good at it, and if you've got great teachers and you pay those teachers uh, for their skills, not on a step and ladder schedule, you know what I mean? But like, right. if you really pay those teachers what they're worth in the private marketplace, then it could be a driver of really economic you know, right. and prosperity. So, yeah. And that's just the starting point. And if we can kind of intervene at the school an education level and really transform K through 12 education mm-hmm. to make sure that we're serving all students, but in particular, these low income students, then that could at least be the start of really tackling intergenerational poverty. And obviously, we're never going to solve poverty. That's not yeah. the point. But we have to I think the, the goal should be that mobility should improving mobility. So these kids aren't just really left hanging in a yeah, sense or ignored ignored because <laughs> yeah it's I, I it's discouraging if you can already kind of look at st louis and all the children in poverty and be like all right a third of sorry one third of you over here <laughs> you're gonna stay in poverty like, like just you, count them off one two three all the threes go over there right and, and that's i'm just, sorry that's just that's heartbreaking it and it's heartbreaking and and i don't want to get into the weeds on this too much but uh in terms of like being able to ignore the problem, you also wrote an essay on the Missouri um, school accountability system, which I am not a huge fan of the APR system. I'll just be on the record. But that is the only measure we have to know how well schools are doing is we get this thing called the annual performance report. Right. And it's a number. It's a percentage number. And to me, it's just like virtually impossible for a parent to understand. But in addition, it really hides disadvantaged kids oh, in a absolutely. very troubling way. Because absolutely. if there are not 30 of a group of students in a particular school that meet a disadvantaged um, uh, category, 
then their scores aren't reported at all. Right. Like you can really hide disadvantaged kids in that system. Right. And that's why it's good to have things like the National Assessment for Education Progress yes, for because sure. then we you have can a, see. We can see. And the other thing about the accountability system is that the State Board of Education won't even enforce it even if a district isn't doing well. Speaking of the boot heel. Right. What happened there? In Haiti, they were... That's in the boot heel. Right. They were upgraded um, from unaccredited to provisional accredited, accredited. I think they're fully accredited now. Sure. And they're not even meeting the goals that the State Board of Education set. And how them. long were they provisionally accredited? Ten years. Yes. Yeah, so. It was a decade. So like a child in Haiti, which is... Most, mostly African-American, mostly poor, you could go from pretty much kindergarten to graduating at a n- not fully accredited school. And then they upgraded them for really no reason. Yeah. And it's a, it's a travesty. It's a travesty. And I would really challenge the Missouri Department of Educa- Elementary and Secondary Education, DESE, to create an accountability system where we can find out this information about where schools are not serving those students well. Because, right. I mean, I mentioned that that 30 cutoff. Many, many states use 10 or 15. 30 is the maximum allowed by law. And Missouri's mm-hmm. DESE just said, we'll go with the biggest. And that is literally makes it easier to hide the kids who who need it most. And if we, can, if we don't improve education, how are we going to improve mobility? Right. Absolutely. I mean, it's like chicken yeah. and egg thing but yeah if you ask low-income people they know that education is the key out of poverty of course they do but they don't have access to good schools and, and a what lot can of, they do nothing yeah in missouri not a whole lot unless you're you live in st louis or kansas city and there is some school choice and what if you can't move or the southeast corner there's no school choice there is no school springfield choice. no school choice right Joplin, no i mean the whole rest of the state there's right. zero options unless you can afford to move well that's ridiculous well, but that's why do we have to have? And if you're living in poverty, what's the likelihood? You probably are getting housing assistance. And right. You live where you can find. You don't you, have yeah. you don't have the luxury of making those kinds of decisions when you're just trying to get by and survive. And that doesn't mean that as a low income parent, you don't know that your child's going off to a terrible school. Right. Or you don't care. It's of just course. we've yeah. just boxed them in with this outdated school system that's not serving low income students. I feel like um and this isn't the first time I've said this either. Like we have this accountability system that just says everyone's fine. Right. The whole state is fine. Nearly every district is called fully accredited, which means we have nothing to worry about. Right. right. Everyone's being well served. But only 16 percent of low income students are at grade level in math. Right. In eighth grade. And I would say some people say that the NAEP uh, proficiencies cut scores are kind of high they're kind of challenging but even if you look at the basic the numbers are basic is not high that's like basic uh there's still dismal and there's still a huge gap between low income and non-low income and over time that gap has not gotten any smaller like that should be our goal right we want everyone to be progressing but we want our disadvantaged kids need to be progressing at higher rates so that we can begin to close that gap otherwise it's like what you're talking about in your essays you're born with just really terrible life chances and you just stay on this path. And we're just like, sorry. Right. You know, you we you in the parent lottery, you lost. Right. And that doesn't seem fair to me. Yeah, it's not fair. And it's horrible for these these people to kind of be stuck in that situation. And it, it really does affect the rest of the state. It really does. If you want to fix our roads and pour mo- more money into schools or whatever is your priority or what is ever your vision for the state, that's going to large welfare spending and large Medicaid spending is going to get in the way. So we 
we really have to focus on breaking these cycles of poverty. And other states are doing it. People are doing it here in Missouri already. And so we have to start looking for these different solutions that maybe we didn't think about before and try new things and really focus in on. So would that be like eliminating red tape is often also talked about as a good thing to do, like bureaucracy and red tape, reducing it so that communities can develop their um, like nonprofit solutions. Right. I mean, people have good ideas. Right. There are good ideas everywhere. There's energy everywhere. Yeah. And so we need to really tap into that and really find ways. And this is kind of going to be the next steps of this project is finding ways where the state can better assist or get out of the way of communities helping people in poverty that are their neighbors and really looking for those community based solutions and seeing where the state can be of best assistance. Because also in your data are communities where intergenerational mobility is pretty good, right? right? Even though they may have the same rate of poverty, there are some communities where you're less likely to stay in poverty your whole life. And so those communities are places we should be looking to see. And I think you mentioned, I know you do, as does Raz Chetty, you know, social capital and strong communities. And you could, you know, you could take a community from being like troubled, like Haiti and like no support. And you could find ways, right, to to just literally strengthen community ties, like invest people in their neighborhoods, like get them out of their houses. Like there's things you could do to connect people that right. are, are not government solutions. Exactly. And being aware of how important those other aspects are. So we talked a lot about education, but the other things of the community strength and the um, like family strength also are very, very important when we're talking about intergenerational poverty also. Yeah. Talk a little bit about the two parent family thing. So I think that's really interesting. Yeah. So when they're looking at data and they were trying to find things that strongly correlated with upward mobility, the strongest correlation was with the percentage of single parent homes in that area. And it wasn't just it's not just affecting the child with the single parent. They found that if you're a child with two parents in an area with lots of single parents, your prospects were worse than if you were a child of a single parent in an area with lots of two parent homes. And so it has a community ripple effect. And so it makes sense, obviously, because with two parents, there are at least the potential for two sources of income. Um, Sure. And so there's just a matter of resources when it comes to parents. But then there's also a community aspect of having like good role models and all of these different social implications of ties, stronger ties, healthier families and it's not clear what the state can do about that, um, but I think we need to at least be aware and have that included in the conversation and can't ignore it because it was it was the thing that correlated the strongest. That's interesting. So I know I just have a tendency to throw around terms that maybe not everybody uses every day, mm-hmm. like social capital. But like that is like when you're when you're making something and you've got these uh factors that you use like machines and human capital and you know like you literally are putting resources in to make something social capital is like literally a resource that comes from just society Mm -hmm. and society's bonds and how strong those are 
or how weak they are. Right. Like if you can do something on a handshake or if you need to set a contract lawyer, yeah. right? And, and, and literally has a cost savings. Yeah, and building right? relationships within the community. I mean, just ask yourself how, if you have a job or if you got an internship or went to school, like, did you have a relationship with someone from that institution yeah. that gave you kind of insight and helped you along the way. Yeah. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. It's not kind of this like pixie dust. It's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's relationships of people wanting to help others and reaching out a hand to help others succeed. And it's questionable how you measure it, but people right. try to measure it all the time. It's been happening for a long, long time. Right. And it's a thing that's like, you, you know, it when you see it kind of thing. But, right. um, but I also feel like a lot of nonprofits when you read their mission statements, that's part of their mission statement is to improve social capital, right. right? So there are people who, or groups, I should say, nonprofits, who have that as part of their mission is to strengthen the community because, mm-hmm. I, you know, since the, I'm just going out on a limb here, but like since the 1950s, our communities have gotten weaker, I think, you know, uh, we're all bowling alone now. And the Rotary and the Lions and even like the Elk and the Moose that, well, those were in where I lived in Virginia, but I don't know if that's a thing in rural Missouri, but you know, we, you see less and less of that. So I think like one illustration that can show like how so low sh- social capital affects people in real life. So say you're a single mother yeah. and you're trying to find a job, but you don't have childcare right now and you need you have a job interview, but you don't have anyone to watch your child because like you nobody. don't you don't know anybody <clears throat> in the area. You don't have any family, but you can't afford child like professional child care. Mm-hmm. Do you miss the job interview? I mean, I've seen a story of like where a woman just like left her child like in the lobby and got in trouble with the police because she was neglecting her child. So but in the case of like social capital, maybe you can turn to your elderly neighbor who is a grandma and loves children and you can say, hey, I need to go to this job interview. Do you mind watching my child for a couple of hours? That's the difference that social capital makes. And Yes, it's kind of a wonky term, yeah. but that's that's all we're talking about is human relationships and being able to connect with with one another and help each other when you need it. Because it helps all of us. Right. Right. And uh, I think that, um, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't you map social capital in the state? Yeah, well, it's, it's low in the southern part of the state and so, higher yeah. in the northern part of the and state. some of our most troubled communities are, are in, in the lower part. Exactly, and, right? And the so. higher mobility areas are in the upper part, in the northern part of the state. Yeah, and so you talked about a 10% improvement in, in mobility, and there certainly are communities with 10% differences. Right. Right? And so some of them have figured this out, and we just need to, like, tap into what they're doing, right, with their, mm-hmm. and um, maybe share the knowledge because it is so And that's important. where the state can come in. Like, it can be kind of a hub of knowledge where yeah. communities can come together and... Uh, collaborate and kind of be a forum rather than telling people what to do. It can kind of just be aware where people can collaborate and share ideas and like, here's what's working for us. Best practices. Right. Best practices. That's where I think the state could really be effective in this area. Yeah. So seemingly if we just invested a fairly small amount, the return should be yeah. Really pretty good. Yeah, the return could be large if we do it correctly. Because you figure... I That's think, always the biggest question. Right, 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 right. <laughs> if we do it correctly, right? But you figure in your paper that uh, a typical household living in poverty in Missouri is getting how much a year? Um, depending, like, like $15,000, depending on 10, the... $10,000, $15,000. Yeah. Depending on how many kids there are. Yeah. So investing... like. We're not talking about any programs that would invest $10,000 in these families, right? It's, right? it's a small fraction of that to get a return because like $10,000 or $15,000 per family times a lot of families, times yeah. a lot of years. Right. And I think every year that goes by, the prospects of getting out of poverty probably 
yeah. go down. And that's one thing that they found, Raj Chetty and his team found, is that the sooner you intervene with these children, the better the result. Okay, so tell me what you're going to do next. So next, I think we're going to continue looking at intergenerational poverty and the other factors we get into education, but looking more at like the community and family aspect of it and what's appropriate for the state to do and what would be most helpful. Um, that's kind of still a tough question, uh, but I think it's one worth wrestling with and really then digging in more and in, in more detailed into the workforce development and career education. All right. Well, thanks, Emily. Uh, I would encourage everyone to go to showmeinstitute.org and check out the papers. They've got a lot of great information on poverty in Missouri, and Emily's done a lot of great work and will continue to do work. So um, thanks a lot, Emily. Emily.